Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you. We're glad that you're here and uh, looking forward to what God's going to teach us through Revelation tonight. So glad that uh, those of you who are here in person, good to have you in out of the heat. And I think somebody said just a minute ago, 50-something days here in Texas without rain. And uh, I heard that we're going to have to start spraying the catfish for ticks is what I've heard. It's getting so dry, but... Uh, I don't know about that. But anyway, wherever you are joining us live stream, I hope it's raining there and, and much cooler than it is in Texas. But we're glad that you've joined us, and we're to Revelation chapter 16, the second half of it, beginning with verse 12 tonight. So let's pray together, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight to study your word. Every Wednesday night, it's good to be with your people. It's good to have those joining us online and to open up your word, have the Holy Spirit be our teacher and speak to us. God, would you do that through the second half of chapter 16 of Revelation tonight? Lord, show us what the end is going to be like. Show us your victory, the power that Jesus Christ has. And may tonight you give us wisdom and insight as we read. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take a moment before you, we start. If you're here live with us, check your phone. Make sure it is off or it's on silent. And that way we'll not be distracted whenever we continue on. If you're watching us online, I don't guess that matters. So uh, you can have your phone whatever position. But we'd like to ask those of you here live if you would have yours on silent so we could um, uh, continue in our study tonight. Well, we're nearing the ending of the seven-year tribulation. And uh, we're, it's starting to wind down and more things are starting to happen. God sent seven seal judgments to begin Revelation, then seven trumpet judgments, and now at the ending of the seven-year tribulation, he sends seven bowl judgments. And, and I've talked earlier, a bowl, not necessarily a bowl like we would eat cereal out of. It's more like a saucer. Uh, that's how the bowls were in those days, flatter, and uh, where they were easily tipped over. The contents could easily tip over picturing God's wrath being poured out or dumped out upon the earth. So the worst of the, of the judgments are the last ones, the bold judgments. That's where the worst of God's wrath and fury is poured out upon mankind. What's different about the bold judgments rather than the seal and the trumpet judgments, the trumpet and the seal judgments seem to affect the environment more the bold judgments seem to affect humanity more. So that's kind of a, a difference uh, but between uh, all of the different judgments that God sends in the book of Revelation. So all seven bold judgments are listed in Revelation chapter 16. So we looked at the first five two weeks ago whenever we had our last session. Last week, of course, was the Tanzania mission trip team that reported to you what God did on their recent mission trip. And then tonight we're picking back up with the last two of the bold judgments. Usually I cover one chapter per Wednesday, but there's so much in chapter 16 I divided up into two different Wednesdays. I didn't want to rush through it. There's too much there. And so we'll look at the last two bold judgments in chapter 16 of Revelation starting verse 12 tonight. So if you look at your outline, letter A as a recap, let's kind of summarize where we are uh, to this point. Now, primarily the last half of Revelation. We'll not go to the first half, primarily the second half of Revelation. Notice once the judgments are starting to be poured out upon the earth at, during the time of tribulation, notice how similar they are to the 
Exodus account in the book of Exodus where God's people were in bondage in Egypt. God brought the plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt till finally the Red Sea parted and they went across on dry ground. There are many similarities, and each week we pointed those out. We're going to point out some more similarities tonight. But for some reason, God has seen fit that the final judgment is going to be very similar to the Exodus in the Old Testament. Why? Well, what happened in the Exodus? God's people were delivered. God's enemies were destroyed. What's going to happen here in Revelation? God's people are going to be delivered. God's enemies and the earth is going to be destroyed. So you see the similarities that are there. Now, all the while, we looked at the last five bold judgments two weeks ago. As we're looking at those, I want to give you just another scenario of what was happening. Two weeks ago, we were in the, in the, uh, in the uh, fellowship hall going through the five bold judgments, but alongside of the bold judgments, there was a coalition of the greatest armies and nations of the world marching toward Israel. They're coming to do battle with God. Not Israel, God. So we're going to see in the battle of Armageddon tonight that the nations of the world will gather in Israel because Israel represents God, but they're fighting, the Bible makes it clear, they're fighting God, they're not fighting Israel. So as these five bold judgments were coming, the armies, coalition, they're marching toward Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel, and each bold judgment would slow them down a little bit, but the armies kept marching. Where are they coming from? Well, they're coming from the major world leaders. All of the major world leaders are going to form a coalition to march toward Israel to annihilate the Jews. Vast armies from Asia heading to Jerusalem to make war against God. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes that there will be armies from the north Theologians have theorized maybe Russia. Armies will be coming from the lands of ancient Persia, according to Ezekiel. What's Persia? It's Iraq, okay? A lot of theologians think that Iraq is going to play a key role in and Iran as well in uh, during the end times. So they're also coming from North Africa according to Ezekiel. So they're all converging, coming from, from basically the West, converging upon Israel for the final battle of Armageddon. It will culminate in what's known as the Valley of Jezreel. Now, for those of you who've been to Israel with us, uh, you remember Valley of Jezreel Day, don't you? It's a beautiful valley. We, we get on the bus. That it's the very first day of touring. We leave the hotel, we go up the coast, Mediterranean coast, make a stop at Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, where Paul was in prison. Paul gave his defense. We look at that. Go on up then to, uh, uh, to the uh, area of Sharon, plain of Sharon. Go up to Mount Carmel. And at, at Mark, Mount Carmel, we are, are there, and, and, then, and we're looking at where 
Elijah and the prophets of Baal encounter, had, had the encounter, fire fell from heaven, and at that spot you look down upon the valley of Jezreel where the final battle's going to be fought. And then we go to the other end of the valley of Jezreel, a place called Bethshean, where Saul was killed, his head was hung on the wall there, the Bible tells us. We look at that, and then we look back to the north at the valley of Jezreel, and you can picture what it looks like. The final battle field where it's all going to culminate. Now, I've got a picture. I want to show you those on virtual. You'll be able to see on your screen. This is a picture you'll see on the screen there. This is from the south, looking to the north. Bethshean area is over here to the left. It's a very fertile farmland. You see it. You're looking to the north. You're looking towards Syria. Uh, Syria more to the right. Lebanon more to the left. Uh, you'll see the big mound in the very middle. That's Mount Tabor where some people believe Jesus was transfigured. Uh, probably not. They do mostly hang gliding off of it now in Israel now today. Uh, but probably not that. But that is the valley of Jezreel as you go north. Look at the next picture. This is one that I actually took with my iPhone. This is from the north looking back to the south. So you're looking, there's the, there's the Mount, Mount Tabor again. And so you're looking, if you go back to the right, that is, begins the Valley of Jezreel just below this rock formation. So that's the Valley of Jezreel. What's in the Valley of Jezreel? Let me mention it just a moment, then we'll go to our third slide. Valley of Jezreel is 14 miles long. It's 20 miles wide. It is called Har Megadon. Har means hill of. Megadon is, of course, the, the valley that's called. So we get from Har Megadon, the valley of Megadon, or the hill of Megadon, Armageddon. Now, in the middle of that, you couldn't see it because it's underground. Right in the middle of the valley of Jezreel is one of three air force bases that Israel has, the Israeli defense system has. It's called Ramat David Air Force Base. The fighter jets are underground, so they can't be bombed from above the ground. So they're underground, the ground opens up, and then the fighter jets take off. Uh, it was built, the uh, Air Force Base was built in 1942. It's one of three in Israel, there are about 1,100 soldiers there. They have two F-16s underground. They have one uh, 117 First Jet Squadron, so very high-tech um, uh, machines are underneath the ground, ready to go in a moment's notice. You can see how this could escalate very quickly. Now, Israel voted in 2014. There's only one airport right now, an international airport in Israel. It's Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv. They voted to have a second international airport at this location. So it was supposed to be ready in 2019. COVID delayed it. It should be opening soon, but there will be two locations now you can fly into Israel, not just Tel Aviv, but also at, in the Valley of Jezreel where uh, the, the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. Now, the Valley of Armageddon has been called the perfect battlefield. Napoleon fought on it and said, this is the perfect battlefield. There have been about 200 battles fought in this one piece of land over the centuries. The very first one was fought all the way back 1400s when Egypt fought Canaanite tribes there. Pharaoh Thutmose III was the one who uh, fought in there, uh, won the battle. 
all the way up until World War I, Lord Allenby of Great Britain won a, a battle in, some of you may remember that from history, uh, World War I in Israel in the Valley of, of Armageddon. In the Bible, Deborah and Barak de defeated the Canaanites in Judges 4 and 5 in the Valley of Jezreel. Gideon beat the Midianites, Judges 7, in the Valley of Jezreel. Pharaoh Necho defeated King Josiah of Israel, 2 Chronicles 35, in the Valley of Jezreel. So it's, it's really fertile farmland, but it's had nothing but bloodshed through the years. Why would it be the perfect battlefield? Let's look at the third slide, and I'll show you why. So now you're looking at the Valley of Jezreel from the west looking to the east. So up here would have been the northern section. Down here would have been the, the southern section to the, back to the right. You'll see the, the Jezreel Valley. Several reasons why it's the perfect battlefield. First of all, a lot of fertile farmland through here. So you can feed armies. You have food to feed armies. It's a big deal whenever your armies are traveling. You have to feed them. So you have wheat, you have cotton, you have sunflowers, you have fresh fruit, luscious fruit in this region. And so you can feed armies very well through here. Another one is you have access to water, Mediterranean Sea. You can have fleets come into this battlefield very quickly. You have fresh water. The Jordan River runs through there. You have a lot of springs running through here. You remember the story of where Gideon's men went down and lapped the water like a dog? That's in the Valley of Jezreel. Very uh, springs that are really fresh water so you can water armies, not just feed them. You can water them. Also, you have natural defenses. See, on either side of the valley, you have high hills, so armies are naturally protected. You can move troops easily, protected on both sides. You have hilltop fortresses. You can see what your enemy's doing. And so, you look at all these factors together. The Valley of Jezreel really has been called the perfect battlefield. So this is the location where all the armies of the world are going to meet and Israel, God's going to do battle and God is going to be victorious. In this valley, Revelation told us a couple of weeks ago, you might remember, that's where the blood would be as high as the horse or a horse's bridle that would be running through this valley. So a lot of bloodshed in the final uh, end of, uh, of the world. Now let's go to letter B on your outline and let's recap the first five bold judgments before we get to the judgments, uh, the, the, the six and seven tonight. If you go back to first uh, two of Revelation 16, the first angel went, poured out his bowl on the earth, harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So number one, first bold judgment was the painful sores. Then verse 3, it was the second bowl judgment. Second angel poured out his bowl. The sea, it became like the blood of a corpse. Every living thing in the ocean died. That's the second bowl judgment. Third bowl judgment is from verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl onto the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So that's fresh water. So fresh water then was uh, affected by blood. Now later on, the fresh water would turn and become good again, drinkable again, but for a season, it's going to be blood, bloody where you can't drink it. And then the fourth bowl judgment, verses 8 and 9. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent 
and give him glory. So the fourth bold judgment was the sun scorching the earth and scorching people. It was so hot. And in the fifth bold judgment, verses 10 and 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, but they did not repent of their deeds. So the fifth bold judgment, darkness over the entire earth. So those are the first five bold judgments of Revelation 16. Now let's go to bold judgments 6 and 7. So go to letter C on your outline. And let's look at the sixth bold judgment, verses 12 to 16. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, six bold judgment means that the Euphrates River is going to dry up. Now, at one time, that would have seemed impossible. The Romans considered the Euphrates a secure border against all invaders from eastern empires. Romans didn't worry about the east. They couldn't get across the Euphrates. It's too wide, too swift. It was 1,800 miles long. It was anywhere from 300 yards wide to 1,200 yards wide. You can't get an army across it. So the Romans did not worry about kings from the east. They couldn't get away from the Euphrates and get across it to get to them. Book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 4, the Euphrates is the boundary God set between Israel and Asia. So they didn't worry about the Asian nations. But if it dries up, you can have nations move westward with ease and invade Israel, invade the Roman Empire. You can have China, India, Japan. They can all just come across. In fact, if you draw a straight line east from Israel, it will take you through Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, and China. That's interesting, isn't it? What if a coalition of those banded together and came against Israel from the east? Probably the most interesting of those to me personally is the connection to China. China, almost every time you turn on the news, there seems to be a story of China's aggression to become a world superpower. Its government represses its people. Uh, its government has surveillance upon its own citizens. It's intrusive into the use of electronic monitors. It has autocratic spying across the nation. And the, the military, if you've not been reading China's military, their threat is becoming unprecedented. So kings from the east, if you just take that coalition right there from the east, you have some powers that could assemble in the valley of Jezreel. But the Euphrates dried up, almost as if God is making a way for them to get there. 
It's almost as if like God wants them there because his judgment is coming. Now, whenever John wrote this, to, a, to even conceive that the Euphrates River would dry up was almost inconceivable. It would be like somebody saying to you and to me, well, one of these days the Mississippi River is going to dry up and we'll walk across it. What would be your response? Yeah, uh, yeah, I can see that day happening. That's how they felt about the Euphrates. But guess what? Today, the Euphrates is drying up. Look at a picture on Yahoo, which is pretty left-leaning. Look at a picture. That's the Euphrates. Not 200 to 300 yards wide anymore. In fact, the article, this was, this was the end of 2021. This article picture uh, was from Yahoo, and the article was, The Euphrates River is Drying Up. In fact, it started drying up in 1999 because Turkey built dams across it, the Euphrates, to control it. Uh, it runs through Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. And because of that, Syrians are in a humanitarian crisis. They have no more water. They have to walk four miles to get drinking water. People are moving out of the region because they don't have any water. Uh, it's just centimeters away from what's being considered a dead zone, which means officially dry. The dams in Turkey generate 70% less energy every year by year by year because a drought's happening and the Euphrates is drying up. Is God preparing for the final battle? Sure looks like it, doesn't it? The sixth bowl judgment and the Euphrates drying up so the kings from the east can march across it and be in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Now stop there for a moment. Do you remember a few chapters ago where, where the Antichrist and the devil is going to try to mock the Trinity? You remember that? Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's going to put together a, an unholy Trinity to mock what God has, to mimic what God has. And those three are going to be called the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they will correspond to God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So we see in verse 13 this unholy trinity. Out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the unclean spirit, three unclean spirits will come like frogs. Now, most Bible scholars believe that what's going to happen to bring all of these kings from around the world to gather their armies together to march into Israel is a worldwide proclamation. What does that look like? Don't know. 
Because it says, out of their mouths will come demonic spirits that will convince these kings of the world they need to attack Israel. What's going to be the proclamation? We don't know. It's hard to conceive, but there will be something that's announced worldwide. It's time to gather forces and finally, once and for all, annihilate the Jews. So, that's what's going to happen. Kings of the East will join the rulers of the world powers for a final conflict, and there's going to be some kind of proclamation. Whenever the proclamation goes out, out of their mouths, there will come unclean demonic spirits like frogs. Now that's odd, is it frogs? Wait a minute, go back to Exodus. What was plague number two? Frogs. In Exodus chapters 7 and 8. Frogs were considered by Jews repulsive and unclean. But by the Egyptians in Exodus, they were worshipped. In fact, they felt frogs were goddesses, female gods. And the Jews saw them as repulsive. So God used something they thought was a god as a plague. Now, once again, we see some kind of spirits that are like frogs. But they appear to be demons that are going to be released some Bible scholars say perhaps the worst demons the world has ever seen that will invade these nations and the leaders of these nations like the plague of frogs in Exodus 7 and 8 that will convince them Israel needs to be destroyed. And they'll all come against Israel. So, that's why I said many times in our study when you're looking at the end times, keep your eye on candidates, parties, world leaders that support Israel and those that don't support Israel. That's the key. Go to verse 14. For they are demonic spirits, these frogs, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So these demons are sent to the rulers of the earth to deceive them into assembling their troops to annihilate the Jews. Now, the battle that follows is going to be described in, in Revelation 19. Three weeks, three Wednesdays, we'll get there. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, this battle that takes place is going to be described. The winner of the battle is apparent. We know who wins. Did you notice it says in verse 14, it's the great day of God? Not the great day of man. Not the great day of the world leaders. It's the great day of God Almighty. So he wins. But the battle is described in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, and we'll get there in, in three weeks. Go to verse 15. Behold, it's notice in parentheses, so it's like a parenthetical statement. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed are the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. Why is that parenthesis in there? 
So what's happening is, God through John is telling us, here's what's going to happen in the end times. It's going to dry up the Euphrates will, and armies will come across, and demons will influence them. And oh, by the way, stay awake. It's going to happen like a thief in the night. Quickly, and keep your clothes on. What did he mean by that? Well, whenever he says, I'm coming like a thief, what does that sound like? Thief in the night, doesn't it? First Thessalonians 5, 2, describing his second coming. Sounds like we're getting close to his second coming here. And then he says, stay awake. What does that sound like? The Olivet Discourse at the end of Mark 13, where he says, what, four times, five times? Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And then garments in, in both Galatians 3 and Ephesians 4, in both of those, He used the word garments to describe righteousness. Put on. You remember what I preached a couple of Sundays ago? Put on. Put on love. Put on kindness. Put on. It's like a garment. It describes righteousness. So keep righteousness on that you may not go about naked. Nakedness in Scripture is, is equal to shame. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, remember? Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. They tried to hide themselves because they were in shame. Not only that, Revelation 3, letter to the church at Sardis, he said, stay awake. And then Revelation 8, letter to Laodicea, he says, keep your clothes on. So he's already said this in Revelation once. He's encouraging believers You need to be ready for this. Now, time out for a second. Who's he talking to in verse 15? Will there be any believers left on earth? So who's the encouragement to? Aren't all the believers already in heaven raptured? That's what we don't know. A couple theories. One theory is, oh, oh, we're already all raptured. So he must be talking to the church. Maybe. Or there may still be believers left by the end of the tribulation if we go through it. Or if those Jews who were saved in the tribulation, if they're still here, that's who he's talking to. So we don't really know who he's talking to in verse 15. And then go to verse 16. And they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the hill of Magadon. Now, as you saw in the pictures there, I showed you the Jezreel Valley. There aren't really many hills there. So what hills are they talking about? Well, it could have been Mount Tabor, the one I showed you that they hang glide off of. Now, Jews, it's a popular. You go through on weekends, they're all hang gliding off of it. Could have been that one. Uh, Mount Carmel is over there. That's where the prophets of Baal were defeated. It's over to the left. It could have been Mount Carmel. But I think more than anything else, you notice there are a lot of hills. It's called the hill country of Israel. A lot of hills throughout there. So it's the valley of Jezreel, but it's the hill country of Megadon. Something else. I showed it to you just a moment ago. It's 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. That doesn't sound big enough for all the armies of the world to get into, does it? Think about it. All the armies of the world fitting into a place 14 by 20 miles. 
So, a lot of Bible scholars believe if you take some of the descriptions in Zechariah and Ezekiel of the final battle, it appears that the, the worst of the conflicts going to be in the Jezreel Valley, but there will be conflicts in Jerusalem, there will be conflicts in the north, and, and some say up to a 200-mile wide swath will be where all the battles take place. Some other Bible scholars say 90 miles in each direction, that, that, but this is where the crux of it, most of it will be fought, is in the valley of Jezreel, which in the Bible says here in verse 16, the valley of Armageddon. Now let's go to the seventh bowl, letter D on your outline, 17 to 21, and we'll close. The seventh bowl is now poured out, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. So the final bowl judgment is not upon a river, not upon a place, but is into the atmosphere where every single human being is affected. Every human being. Every human being needs air. We all need to breathe. And so the last judgment affects our very livelihood of everybody left. Goes into the air. And as soon as it goes into the air and every remaining human on earth is affected, a loud voice came out of the temple that said, It is done. What does that sound like? Jesus on the cross, exactly right. It is finished. Are these the same words in Greek? No. Boy, it sure would be nice if they were. They're not. Jesus on the cross cried out, Tetelestai, which meant it is finished. It was a cry of victory. That man's humanity has been accomplished that man's salvation, humanity's salvation, has been accomplished. Cry of victory. But this word is a calm word, genomai, which simply means it's done. Finished. Work's done. So it's kind of like God is saying, remember, Jesus is a cry of victory for humanity's salvation. This was a just brushing your hands of man's Wickedness is destroyed. Not a victory. Because he wanted humanity to be saved. But just a, just a, a statement. It's finished. Verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And a great earthquake such as there had never ever been since man was on the earth so great was that earthquake so when the seventh seal is released uh, seventh bowl is released into the air there's lightning and thunder and an earthquake that is the most devastating the world has ever known just when the antichrist thinks aha 
All the troops are to Armageddon. The world is assembled against Israel. We're going to annihilate the Jews. And at just the moment they think they win, all of a sudden, an earthquake so devastating, it rips cities apart worldwide. It disrupts infrastructure. It disrupts communication lines. It disrupts and kills millions of people. An earthquake, the worst that has ever been. So devastating, so widespread, we've never experienced it. And at just a moment, a storm comes and the armies can't exist. You know, all through the Bible, God has used storms as divine judgment. He did in Revelation 8, he did in Revelation 11. All through Scripture, he's done that. And in the last battle, there will be a storm and an earthquake that will rip the world apart. Verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Let's talk about that for a moment. So according to verse 19, this great earthquake and this, the great storm that, that comes as a result of the seventh bowl is going to rip the great city apart. What's the great city? We don't know. Some say Jerusalem. It sits on a fault line. Some say Rome, seat of the papacy. Some say Babylon, the old Babylon, the ancient Babylon, remember, which is about 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq, that, that we talked about that quite possibly is the location where the Antichrist will set up his headquarters, the old ancient Babylon. It's very possible that could be the location. Now, Saddam Hussein, whenever he was leading Iraq in the 1980s, some of you may remember this, he started rebuilding the old ancient Babylon. You remember that? He started rebuilding it. He spent millions and started rebuilding it. In fact, today, and then, and then he stopped, uh, started having trouble with other countries and fighting wars, and he stopped. And if you remember, in, I think it's 2003, whenever the American troops went in there and got rid of Saddam Hussein, their headquarters were in the part of the ancient Babylon he was rebuilding, that he had rebuilt. Um, today, the ancient part of Babylon that he had rebuilt um, is a tourist attraction. And it's also where the teenagers of Iraq go and hang out on Friday and Saturday nights. Kind of a hangout spot for the teenagers. But it's still there. And so some believe that is going to be rebuilt back up again. The building's going to continue. Uh, and some say that that's going to be the great city that will be ripped into three parts. So I mean three parts. Three, literally three parts. Or some say three ethnic groups. We don't really know why it means three parts. But it's going to, the city, the great city, most think is Babylon, will be ripped into three parts. Some say, well, it's symbolic. Um, others say that's not required for Jesus to come back. But 
For whatever reason, 19 tells us the great city, whatever it is, is going to be split into three parts. But then it starts talking about Babylon after that. And it says Babylon will at that time take in the fury of God's wrath. Now, I explained this one other time. Let me explain it again. All the way through the, old, the New Testament, the word for wrath is orge, O-R-G-E. Orge is all the way through. Every time you see wrath, it's almost always orge. The word for anger is thymos, T-H-Y-M-O-S. So you either see one or the other. But here, when we're talking about God's wrath poured out for the final time, it's both words combined. Thymos and orge combined together for the strongest possible word for anger and wrath we can imagine is what God pours out. I, I can't imagine that. We have never seen a fury like that from God before, ever as humans. But they will at that moment. On that city will be poured out God's anger and wrath. Now for the next two Wednesday nights, we're going to be talking about in greater detail the fall of Babylon and what that's going to look like that in, in detail. But for just for tonight, just mentioning it, Babylon's going to be destroyed. Go to verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. So, this earthquake is going to be so severe that it levels the mountains, and the tsunamis that are resulting will extinguish the islands. Imagine the islands being swamped, Hawaii, whatever other swamped and disappearing because of the tsunamis. So the mountains will be leveled by fault lines, the, 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 the earthquake, and the islands will disappear due to the tsunamis. Now, let me just put this out there, not that I believe it, but you may hear it. There are, there are some people that believe that whenever the final earthquake appears and the mountains are leveled and the islands disappear, that magically out of this devastating earthquake, boom, there will return to earth the Garden of Eden. And paradise will return. And heaven will be here. And the new heaven and the new earth won't be out there somewhere, it will be here. Jehovah Witnesses, a lot of others believe this is heaven here on earth. It will be, earth will be restored and heaven will appear here. I wanted to mention that, out, mention that to you because you're going to hear it from people who say, oh, heaven's going to be on earth. I've heard people say that. I've heard Baptists say that. You know, heaven's going to be on earth. That's where they get it from. But there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that. Remember, let Scripture be your guide, not theories about Scripture. Let's go to the last one, verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So, at the final, 
when it's all over with, just before Jesus comes, some say this happens just after Jesus comes, most believe it's just before he returns again, there will be hail falling from the sky that weigh a hundred pounds each. I'd like to see those Facebook pictures, wouldn't you? You know, every, every time that it hails, people put on Facebook, oh, this is, look how big, that's the size of a quarter. That's the size of a golf ball. Whoa, softball, wow. It's about as big as we can imagine. A hundred pounds each. So heavy that it kills people. That'll fall from the sky in this storm. Hail was often used in Scripture's divine judgment. Happened in Joshua 10, Job 38, Isaiah 28, Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel 38, hail as judgment from God. And what's interesting is those who are left here on the earth that see the hail coming, that kill some people, rather than repenting, they shake their fists because they know the hail's from God and they know it's judgment and they still don't repent. They shake their fist at him. And that's where chapter 16 ends. Going to be interesting times. The next two chapters will focus more closely on the destruction of Babylon. Where is it going to be and what's going to happen? Are there clues in the next two chapters that may give us a hint as to where the new Babylon may be? Well, we're right at time. We're 11 seconds past 7. So we don't have time for questions. But if you do have any questions, I'll be free afterwards. Or you can email me and be glad to respond. Let's pray together and we'll close. God, I want to thank you tonight that even though... Much of this chapter is about your judgment and your wrath and your fury being poured out. God, we thank you that you've given mankind right now time to repent and not have to go, not have to go through uh, the wickedness that you pour out upon the earth, but Father can be one of your children. And I thank you tonight for those of us who know Jesus as Savior, what our future holds in heaven with you. So Father, tonight, would you continue to bless your people God, may you continue to teach us your word, and may we be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.